Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we are talking about how world building is designed into video games and the way story can transform a game. Joining us today as guest co-host is Sean Kittleson, the VP of Creative Development of Games at Skybound Entertainment, also one of my oldest friends. And our special guest is Mike Pondsmith, a role-playing board and video game designer who founded R. Talsorian Games. And he's the creator of the acclaimed Cyberpunk series. But before we dive in, some news from the Design Museum. Check out membership, become a member and check out Design Museum Magazine. This is our quarterly publication about design impact in our lives. If you like this podcast, you'll love the magazine. Our recent themed issue covered the intersection of design and policing. We'd cover things like healthcare design, change in the workplace. The magazine is filled with articles and case studies about design from thought leaders and change makers around the world. So check it out. Our upcoming issue is gonna be all about education. You can subscribe or become a member to receive Design Museum Magazine mailed to your door every season. And you'll get the digital edition as well, which looks so good on your smartphone or tablet. So check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on magazine. And with that, onto this week's topic, designing the worlds within video games. I think I've mentioned this a lot in past episodes, but I love video games. They're typically high up on my weekly dose of good design because I'm playing them a lot. It's the visuals, the music, the stories. I love it all. In the last year, while I may not have been able to explore and interact with the world like I normally would, video games have been able to transport me to new worlds and experiences. So how are these worlds crafted and designed? I'm super excited to chat with our guest co-host this week. I'm joined by Sean Kittleson. Sean began his collegiate career at NYU, where he studied dramatic writing. Over the years, he has been the narrative designer at Humble Wordsmith and a creative executive at DC Entertainment. At Midnight Oil, Sean led a team of art directors, copywriters, and designers to develop and execute award-winning creative campaigns. And now at Skybound Entertainment, Sean is the VP of Creative Development of Games, where he manages creative affairs and licensing for global franchise IP like The Walking Dead and Invincible. Sean crafts compelling narratives that are thoroughly and thoughtfully designed and developed. Sean, welcome to the show. Wow, that was that felt great, man. When you hear it all together, it's just like the best. (laughs) Yeah, well, when when you hear it all together, it's like, oh, wow, I'm I'm middle aged, aren't I? (laughs) I definitely have been around a bit. (laughs) And listeners, you should know, uh, Sean and I grew up together. We went to high school together in upstate New York. We did crew together, got into all kinds of trouble that we won't go into on this podcast. But anyway, Sean, it's really nice to have you here. Man, it's uh, it's it's really good to be back. And it's like the kind of thing where I've been following like your work with Design Museum and and with this podcast and with your Kickstarters and all that. So uh, this is very full circle to to have kind of been there. I remember helping you prepare your application for RIT, yep. taking photos <laughs> of your sample projects. You mean Steve. 
Yeah, like like I remember being in your garage, like trying to get the perfect light for a perfect <laughs> photo. Like this is gonna make or break my life. We knew so little back yeah, then. They're like this moment, this photo is gonna change my life. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Let's start there actually, because I know this about you, and I know how much you identified with Superman as a kid. You're adopted. Yes. You wrote from a post. You wrote Superman. The movie was on TV a lot in the 1980s. I don't remember when. But at some point, not long after my parents told me I was adopted, I made the connection that Superman was adopted. Superman was just like me. Can you tell me about your relationship and love for superheroes and how that has sort of, what role that's played in your life? Yeah, um, I think it's, it's uh, like you said, I, I having that connection early on helped me contextualize what being adopted meant. Like, it's a very heady concept for a kid. So, yeah, I, I didn't have much of like a reference point. And I think, you know, when you tell a kid something like this, it's important to tell them young so that they don't feel like you you pulled one over on them and, and now they can't trust you. But it's also something that they just don't have the they don't have the context for. There's no way for you to construct in your mind what it all really means. And Superman really put it into perspective and more importantly, like put it into a positive perspective because you know, being orphaned or being adopted, it's not always portrayed as like a positive situation. It's usually portrayed as like, well, there was this foundling yeah. and we're so lucky we fished them out of the gutter. And so you, you end up having all these mythologies that are competing in your mind of who you are and where you came from. And just having that Superman as, as like a guiding light was sort of a thing that kept me going in a lot of ways. And, and over in the course of my life, modeling certain behaviors after Superman even and and trying to aspire to certain standards like a Superman. It was like a kind of role play that like eventually just it became incorporated into my personality. Yeah. And isn't that the power of storytelling, especially for kids who don't have experience to like hear those stories and be like, oh, yes, <laughs> oh, yeah. I can see myself in there. I can adopt this this mindset. I can think this way. Let's talk about the storytelling a little bit more because I know your degree is in dramatic writing, focused on playwriting, screenwriting. How much of that type of storytelling, or maybe it's all the same, but how much of that exists in video games and in the work that you're doing? So I'm probably best known for writing Mortal Kombat 11 and Injustice 2 with uh, Dominic Cianciolo at NetherRealm Studios for WB Games. Again, that's very full circle stuff. I got to write <laughs> Superman. I got yeah. to write all my favorite DC superheroes. I get to work on a Mortal Kombat game and create Mortal Kombat characters. And, which we played uh, when we were kids. <laughs> which is, yeah, it's, it's very like I've checked off a lot of buckets on my list um, <laughs> along the way. But like the storytelling aspects of all of that were what I brought to the table, at least was storytelling. Like what I brought to the table was that kind of expertise. And what I've spent my career supplementing that with is like, I, I came out of college with a pretty good idea of what cinematic storytelling was. I sold a screenplay out of college and, and had like a good sort of quick start. And then the economy crashed and I needed to go find a, a real job, which is all to say, like, I, I brought a strong foundation of writing with me. And I think I had that strong foundation before I went to NYU. But like while there, I what I really found was just I got time to practice uh, and I got connected with a network of people who were practicing the same things that became far more fruitful than any instruction even. And then as I got working in in game development with starting at DC as as like I, my, it was a weird title to be assistant editor because there's not really an editorial position in games. So what I was functionally, though, was like a creative associate or a creative executive. And later on, you know, they changed titles to, to accommodate that. But 
it was come work for us and you will get to tell people if Batman and Superman are authentic in this game, which was like, well, I've been studying my whole life for this. My girlfriend's been coming home after working her three jobs to find me not working a job and play video games for a couple of years now. So like, I think I'm ready. I think, I think, it, I think it was all leading up to this. Yeah. Uh, and that began what I now think of as kind of a lifelong education of like not just understanding games as a player uh, or a fan, but understanding them as a designer and understanding them as a creator. I'm curious. I mean, you got the cinematic writing. How is that different than the work for a video game? Like what makes storytelling in a video game unique? What approaches are you using? Love to hear about that. Storytelling in a game is a lot harder. In a film or a play or even in a book, you provide so much. Right. Like from a novel where you literally provide everything and it is an extremely guided tour of like your your goal as a novelist is to share this world, share this story with the reader in their mind. And then as you get further out, you're just trying to like show them the story <laughs> and don't mm -hmm. share the vision. Of the story. Just give them, present it, force it down their their eyeballs. And games don't work that way. So like my least favorite games are the ones that treat me like I'm watching a film and my, my favorite games are the ones that treat me like I'm inside the film that understand that they're not actually there to entertain me and tell me an authored story as much as they're there to invite me into an authored story where I will actually create my own context. An example I would offer is like with the fighting games, for example, they're, they're highly cinematic story modes, right? So what do you doing in these games you're watching a, a scene and then you're fighting and then you watch another scene and then you're fighting and so you think like well that's not very interactive is there design involved there like you bet your bippy there's design involved there because if you have like 30 characters and you need to construct 50 fights with those characters you don't want to use too much repetition and you have to be kind of aware of how power levels are being represented but most importantly what you have to be anchored in is what emotion is the player feeling at the start of the fight? Mm. And if the player is feeling anything other than I need to fight this other character, you failed. Like, so every one of those scenes, you don't write it the way that you would write a film or a TV show. You write it the way that you would write a scenario in which you are thinking of the player. How am I going to motivate you to fight this next person? And I think why those games were hits or at least were, were praised for their stories is is one because Dominic and I wrote really killer scripts. They were great. Uh, no, we poured we poured heart and soul into them. So there's a lot of love in them. And the cinematics team does an amazing job bringing those things to life. And so do all the performers. But I think what really works is that we started from the player's point of view and said, like, if I'm playing this game and I'm about to get into this fight, do I not only believe that I should be fighting this, but I feel personally compelled to like, I want to fight this. And so there's been nothing more satisfying for me in my career than seeing people play the games I've worked on and have the appropriate like it, it is it's emotional design. It's emotional engineering, right? Like to have the how you're trying to elicit the same response out of millions of people that are going to play the game. And when you see it working through like Twitch and, and Let's Plays on YouTube, oh, that's just like there. I, I did my work like that. That's all I wanted was for you to want to fight this person. That's like, right. It feels like there's so much more responsibility, right, for the writer to do that, right? Because you are developing that connection between the player, the character, the scene. 
how do you approach that differently than just writing a straight up like script or right? Because the other thing, you know, maybe not so much for the fighting games, but when there's many different scenarios, right? And the player's driving, does that just mean you're writing a lot more <laughs> and you're like branching into like decision trees? I'm so curious of like your workflow in that case. So I've written I've written uh, nonlinear stuff and it, it's it's really there are multiple ways to do it. I think branching is the old way. Like branching, branching is what we did before narrative design was really a profession. <laughs> and and it's it's where I think a lot of games started, but but not where games are going because those branches are expensive. What you end up with with you know branching content like that is you create all these different storylines, and as they multiply out, players are only going to play a fraction of what you the content that you create. So how many like are you creating entire scenes and environments that players are never going to see? Are you creating entire character models and rigs and lighting them and getting performances and how much effort are you putting into content that players may not see? And it's important to have variables that are off to the side that players don't see, but it's also important to make a game that can ship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a project. Get, yeah, not to get lost. So one of what I think is like the a, a far more, and I'm seeing more and more designers think this way, but I think the more modern way to approach it is to say like, well, there will be some branching, but but mostly the branching will be contextual, which is to say like we will build scenes, but we will build them with far more sophisticated conditional logic systems, a lot more if then statements so that you start out with things in a fairly tight sort of formation of, of this linear type of story and you have some choices, but the effects aren't really magnified that much. But if you have a way of recording those choices, if you have a way, and this is what tabletop role-playing games have done for decades now, what narrative design in the 21st century is becoming is, is like high-level DMing on a tabletop game. Uh, it, it's, it's become making sure that as you go through each scene, uh, you're not just considering you know, what the character should be doing or what the story demands the character to do, but what would the player potentially want to do Mm -hmm. And what options am I giving them? And then what statement am I making? What values am I expressing through those options? And how am I with my range of choices and with the whatever consequences and effects I layer on top of that? How am I demonstrating to the player? I see what you did and I'm responding to that. I think the best example I've had in the last few years was a game called Disco Elysium. Mm, yes. Where <laughs> I was halfway through Disco Elysium and like a, a, less than halfway maybe and a character just asks me like, hey, what are you about, man? And I'm like, oh, look, I am for the people. I'm straight out a socialist. I just want, I just all about the people. And immediately like my lizard brain or like some aspect of my psyche kicks in and says like, no, you're not, you liar. You're a people pleasing middleman. You just go straight down the middle. You're mainstream all the way. You'll do anything for a buck or just to get out of an awkward situation. I'm like, oh, stop oh. reading me. Stop. Like, I mean, are you in a way like it's like you're programming language Well, you're programming an experience at the end of the day, right? I mean, like programming is language, right? So, yeah. so it's it's taking that and extrapolating it out further. And I think that if you're designing branching narratives, like that's lazy because there's not real agency in a branching narrative. All that, all that that's doing is saying like, welcome to track A. Mm -hmm. You're going mm -hmm. to enjoy it here. We've got lots of fun things. If you check out track B next time, it'll happen at night. Like yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I would much rather have a like, hey, there's some nuance here to where certain characters are going to react to you in different ways based on how you've 
based on what you've done and based on how it relates to them, not just based on, hey, thanks for picking track A back there. Now I'm going to give you this conversation. Thank you, Sean, for sharing all of this. We're definitely going to have to have you on again to keep diving deeper into these. Listeners, if you want to check out some of Sean's work, visit skybound.com. And yes, we get to keep chatting. Sean, we're going to bring in Mike Pondsmith in just a minute. If you enjoy this podcast, why not be part of the live podcast recording? That's right. You get to see a live recording and ask your questions via Zoom to our guests. Each month, we host a live show, and the edited episode is aired in our weekly program. That's right. In the past, we've had conversations around equity in the workplace, sustainable design materials, and making social impact through graphic design. Our guests have included spoken word artists like architect Jadee Williams, Thought Matters' Jesse McGuire, and our very own Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete-Rakakis. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and become a member today to attend our next live show. See you there. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Mike Pondsmith. Mike is a role-playing board and video game designer. He founded R Talsorian Games, where he developed a majority of the company's role-playing games since founding the company in 1982. Players know him as Maximum Mike across many of the cyberpunk books or the man who killed your cyberpunk character, which is the best. He created the cyberpunk universe, and recently Mike was a consultant for Cyberpunk 2077. Mike is a designer of worlds and games where he reimagines the power of thoughtful, imaginative storytelling. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's talk about stuff. Yeah, let's get into it. And you mentioned in our in our prep and we found in our research that you have a degree in graphic design and behavioral psychology. That seems like a perfect combination for game world building. So have you always wanted to design games? No, I, I've always designed games. What was amusing is when I pick up the second degree and then I started working in game design, which I actually started in video game first, is my mother said, you, you got that, didn't you? I mean, that's perfect. And uh, I thought it was pretty amusing because years later, I worked as a college instruction in game design. Mm. And they asked me to do some curriculum work. And I said, yeah, well, we're going to have to have some video game, you know, actual design. And we need to have psychology classes. And they went, psychology classes? And I said, everything we do is psychology. Yes, we're humans. Can you talk about how those two design and psychology blend to create these worlds and these experiences? Basically, what you are trying to do is take part in a person's mind space. You know, let's think about a typical day and all the things you have to do. That takes up a lot of what your headspace is doing. So you have to make a special headspace for when you want to do a game or the TV show you're following or binging or whatever. And our job as designers is to find a way to make that expenditure you're going to make worth it. Mm. Now, mm -hmm. to do that, we have to do a couple things. We have to figure out why do people do this? Why are they interested in it? What parts of it do they like the most? And then how can I send that information downline to somebody I can't see? I can't check with them on it and draw them into the experience when I'm doing it blind. I can't see them. I'm pretty much guessing. And you do that in a lot of different ways, and they all involve the psychological knowledge of how people tick. Mm, I see. So you're having this conversation with someone, but there's a big wall between you. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's more interesting in video games because when you're doing a tabletop game, you can adjust along the way. You can say, hmm, they don't seem interested in that, so I'll forget it. But 
if I'm doing a video game, I have to, for example, say, okay, why would anybody be interested in the fact that Johnny Silverhand is living in someone's head? Why do they care about Johnny? You know, so I have to figure out how to make them care about characters and the situations those characters get into. Uh, my wife, one of her favorite sayings is that if they don't care about the characters, you're never going to keep them interested in what you're saying. And she's, you know, characters number one, and she's absolutely right. Can you tell us about some of your early game iterations and how your thoughts on gaming have changed over the years? Oh, man. Yeah. Actually, I am rebuilding the first game I ever designed, which I did at age 10, I think, 10 or 11. I remember I just started junior high school and uh, I had been reading this science fiction book. I was speaking of science fiction and this story was called Raiders from the Rings. And I decided I was going to come up with this game. But the premise of Raiders from the Rings, an Alan E. Norris story, was that these people out in the rings of Saturn and so forth had to raid Earth and kidnap wives because out in the rings, you know, men or women were made sterile or something strange like that. It was years ago. But the whole point was it was very much like a lot of the old early 80s top-down shooter console games, you know, where the, the bad guys come down from one end of the screen and then, you know, you're shooting at the bottom. And that was kind of boring. So what I ended up doing was I added a dimensional aspect to it. The board was a long board with different raised squares at three different heights, and they represented areas of hyperspace. And you had to go down to the same level of hyperspace to attack somebody. So the game became three-dimensional. And you know, I built it using scrap wood out of wood shop then. I remember uh, Mr. Kashua Mora, the, the shop manager, looked at me and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm building a game, man. He said, that does not look like checkers. I said, it's a little more than that. Yeah. So basically, I'm rebuilding it because we have no better tools. And also, I'm doing it now in plexiglass so that it's really cool. And I can bottom light it. You know? Yeah, cool. Like, Whoa. Mm -hmm. And that was the first one. And then I did a castle defense game that was based off Robin Hood, which never really went anywhere because... Uh, that year I had, I had algebra that year and I didn't have a life during algebra. <laughs> I mean, is it fair to say that there's, there's things that you will just, and I feel this way, there's things you work on your whole life mm -hmm. in some ways, like you're, you're kind of, they're always being worked on in some way. Every, every experience you have, whether you're going for your psych degree or your design degree, like you're kind of always, all of these projects are there. I've, I've heard you say you're a tinkerer who likes to tinker on many, like many projects at a time. Yeah. Uh, you're incapable of kind of just like one thing because there's too much. Well, I have right now, if, if you were able to look over my bookshelf next to me, I have these boxes where I put game projects in, big plastic boxes that I carry all the data in. And I think I've got, I've got about 15 right now that are all sitting in there. And, you know, everything from, gee, let's do something in World War II. Let's do something in Polynesian myth. Let's do something in outer space, but different than regular outer space. <laughs> My wife, again, uh, likes to joke that, you know, before I've even finished the previous game, I'm on to the next game. Mm. And my son, who eventually, through lack of common sense, followed me into game design <laughs> and did very well for himself. He's, he does the Witcher RPG. Nice. And what I found amusing is that his wife said the same thing to me. She said, yeah, when, when Cody's, you know, sort of almost done with something, I think he's going to want to rest. He just goes on to the next thing. And he and I are always looking for a new way to do a story or an idea. And, you know, it's what keeps us sane.
I'm curious about whether it's a tabletop video game. You know, you talked about character being important. Mike, how do you design that relationship? Because it just feels fundamental. It's fundamental and it's kind of weird because I have learned more about it incrementally by looking at what people do with the characters. You know, when we did the original Cyberpunk, I created characters who were more to show how the world worked. So, you know, the idea that somebody would one day be playing Johnny in effectively a movie, when you think about it, was kind of like, nah, it ain't going to happen, you know? (laughs) And yet I knew I had to have a character that was reasonably attractive and compelling. And I know stuff about Johnny, obviously, that isn't known, isn't really out there. The CD guys, you know, we've sat down. I told them everything. Yeah, yeah. Download, right? Yeah. And we've basically gone back and forth. And, you know, somebody will say, well, you know, what about this? And I'll go, no, Johnny wouldn't do that. But he'd do this. Hmm. Um, I remember an interview where I said, I I warned my daughter never to date anyone like Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) If if he shows up, your brother and I will beat him up. Okay. (laughs) But... um, What you have to do is look for hooks in the character, things that make that character interesting enough to drive the player or the observer to want to dig up more facts. You don't want to lay it all out in front of them. That's the problem many Mary Sue characters do. What you want to do is you want to leave hints of what caused this person to be that way, what bothered them, what drives them. And, you know, I'm looking at characters I created and... I'm fascinated that people then grab on and those characters become important to them. You know, the other day as a joke, I said, oh, I wonder how many uh, Cyberpunk 2077 fanfics are there, you know, and I typed in a couple of the main characters. And, you know, so I, I go in and I find 2,400 Johnny Silverhand fanfics. Wow. And I'm thinking... 2,400 people decided they were going to go take this character and run with it, you know. And I started reading it, so I'm going, you know, what did they figure out that I maybe never intended to say, you know. But it's now incumbent upon me not to screw it up. What goes with it is uh, when I actually asked that question, it was because I had been watching this program on Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And how he hated the character. He was going to do serious stuff. And it just, (laughs) he drove him crazy that people kept saying, no, no, we got to have more Sherlock Holmes. You know, Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes dies and Reichenbach falls. Everybody is, you know, people walking around with black armbands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I looked at that and I said, dude, you didn't understand. You made something that will stick in people's minds forever. You're wanting to do something important. You just did it. You just made a character that will influence culture for the next thousand years. People are not often given that opportunity. So, you know, I don't look at the stuff I've written and go, oh God, I should do something serious. I go, are they having a good time? Yeah, they're having a good time. Okay. I did my job. Yeah. That's a, that's a positive. Let, let's talk about cyberpunk. Where did the idea come from, from the, for the original tabletop? Oh boy. It was a fusion of Blade Runner, which is my favorite movie. I have so many versions of Blade Runner. It's kind of frightening. And it was weird because when I first saw Blade Runner, I remember walking out and seeing the person I went with. I either love that movie or absolutely hate it. I can't decide which. So I'm going back tomorrow to find out. And basically, I liked the world, but I realized that it lacked a certain thing, which I've seen in a lot of cyberpunk fiction at that time, which is... For role-playing, you can't really be a hero or a driving, motivated character in it because the whole point is the system is going to crush you. 
And so parallel to that, as I was messing around, it turned out that one of my friends, Rob Prudent, was running a Mekton game, my giant robot thing. And one of the other people in there uh, playing it was Walter John Williams, the, the uh, basically science fiction writer for everything. He does all kinds of stuff. I said, oh, you know, that's kind of interesting. And Rob said, yeah, you should tell him about this you know, weird idea you have because he wrote this book called Hardwired. And I went, hmm, okay, I'll check that out. And I got Hardwired and I started reading. I went, yeah, you know, this character isn't a classic hero. And, you know, the people in here are not classic heroes, but they're heroes in their story. And they win. They don't save the world, but they win in the story that they are the authors of. And I went, that's it. That's how you do this. Basically, that was the key for me was that I figured out from that, looking at Hardwired and then looking at it in the light of Blade Runner, how you could make a cyberpunk world work. You had to be kind of a rock and roll bad boy hero or bad girl hero, as the case may be, you know. And it was funny because it wasn't until, you know, quite a bit later that I actually saw William Gibson's writing because I didn't, you know, understand what was going on over there. And I'm not sure whether Walter suggested I read it. Somebody did. And I went, wow, this guy is so good. He, he, I said, looked at my book and I said, middle of the night I'm reading. I can't put it down. I go, this guy is so good. His writing makes my teeth hurt. I mean, I just, <laughs> I'm grinding my teeth going, yes. Yeah. You know? But I probably would have you know, changed some things had I seen Gibson along the way. And I, I did try when I did the published edition to put in things that were you know, callbacks because you know, I thought, this guy's freaking awesome, you know. To me, game design is one of the things that's distinct from other media, from other storytelling medium, is that you don't design, like in, in a storytelling medium, you kind of come up with an event or a character insight first, and, and you start extrapolating until you build out an entire story that 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 justifies that event or that that leads up to that character insight or or that starts from there. But you're always kind of building around a point, but you can't build around that point when you're designing a game always because the, your players, you don't know when they're going to drop into your world, you're, especially when you're designing a large a large world like a cyberpunk, right? Or a Witcher or something like that, where you're looking at it from... What you really need to do is is give players the values by which you would like them to, you know, with, with the values that will govern their gameplay. And it sounds like for you, between Blade Runner and reading Hardwired was the moment where you were like, these are the values I want to put into a, uh, something. These are the values that resonate for me. And I want to find a, a game that is a vehicle for those values. I mean, is that how it worked or am I, am I reading too much? <laughs> You're thinking about it where I don't think I thought about it at the time. I went, hmm, yeah, that'll work, <laughs> uh, which is kind of how I do a lot of things, you know. And then I look back later and go, yeah, that was the process, I guess. So what you end up doing with a game is it's more than just they can drop in at any place. You, if you've done it right, don't really have control of the narrative. The player makes the narrative and you're giving them this really big box of toys to do it with. And one of the interesting discussions I have, there's a, a designer friend of mine. We, we meet at this design conference that they have every year. He and I have gone over because he's going, story is everything. And I'm like, no, Bob, story is not everything. Story serves the gameplay. Story serves the gameplay as giving you an excuse to do what you're going to do in a game. But that being said, your gameplay has to 
basically have a place where that story fits, where that story works. You can't just go, you know, it, it's like if you think about it, a lot of Nintendo games, they design the whole game before they come up with the storyline is. Oh, yeah, right. And you can't quite do that, at least not the level of the stuff we're doing. But you have to work in tandem and go, okay, so... You know, in my game, people are going to run, they're going to shoot, they're going to investigate, they're going to, you know. So what kind of stuff in that world can I put? When I used to teach, I used to describe it as you are basically creating it, not just a sandbox, but a playpen. And this playpen has walls and you try to put them far enough out so the baby can never crawl to the edge of the walls. But to keep them from crawling to the edge of the walls, you put a lot of really interesting toys that do different things in the playpen. And they should be set up in such a way that when the baby picks up toy A, he rattles it. And then he looks over and goes, I wonder if I rattle the B toy, it'll do the same. Oh, wait, it has a bell. Well, I wonder if C toy has a bell and a rattle. It goes as well. And that's a large part, I always feel at least, of your story drives the connections between those things. And if your players are, you know, messing around with that, rather than being enraged at the fact that they are going ahead and doing actions that are not expected, you go, look, emergent gameplay, gameplay told me what they want to do with this world. It's told me what they think is cool. What are the pieces they want to toy with? And I've applied that to a lot of games over the years as I develop them is, you know, I'll do play tests and I'll say, yeah, I really wish I had a pet. And I'll go, hmm, how do pets fit into this? Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll do that. You know, and then there's some, you know, ideas where you just kind of go, yeah, uh, I don't care if you want that or not. That's just dumb. <laughs> well, that's because, you know, in some senses, that's probably when it's run afoul of the core values that you've set, right? Like, oh, this isn't cyberpunk anymore. Now it's a different thing. Yeah. And, and to be honest, you can't really say that, you know, what I'm doing is cyberpunk. It is one version of it. It's the, you know, the, the Talsorian variant of cyberpunk. And it's not, you know, classic cyberpunk because it has a different task. It is a task where people can succeed and be at least little heroes instead of big damn heroes. What was it like for you as that vision holder, your vision basically like coming to life before your eyes? Like, what, what was that like? Uh, it's mind bending, actually. I, I would go back and talk to, you know, family members of one say that was so weird. You know, people are asking me about this and you think, well, you know, if, if I'd known this had happening, I might have designed better. But obviously, I designed well enough for them to be able to springboard. So, mm-hmm. you know, quit beating yourself up about this. You know, mm-hmm. I remember when we found out about Keanu Reeves playing Johnny, it was kind of like I went back to the hotel room after we got all this straightened out and I went, okay, so Keanu <laughs> Reeves is playing Johnny. And you have to be flexible. I mean, you know, Johnny was blonde and more like David Bowie, but mm. he's dead. So, you know, it was going to happen. But I went, yeah, I can see Keanu Reeves doing that, you know, and I, I said, not only that, but he's in bands, so he gets the joke of what it's like to be a dude in a band. And, you know, I stole a lot of my my experiences when I was in bands, I play bass, and I stole a lot of my experiences in, you know, college and later and took them to Johnny and Samurai. So I looked at it and said, yeah, it's not what I originally envisioned, but it would work. And what I'm really amused is that, you know, people look at Johnny now and, you know, I, I look at it as it's, you know, the Keanu version, but it works. And I'm just kind of, yeah, that's cool, you know. 
I would love to hear about uh, a video game that you've been drawn to recently and why you've gravitated towards it. Uh, the last one I got hooked into was Red Dead. And that was because I, I'm not as much a player as I am an explorer. You know, if you, if you know the, uh, you know, Richard Bartle's concept of types of gamers, brilliant thing. You should look this up if you've never done it. But, you know, I'm an explorer. I want to know what the heck is out there and I can make my own fun. So for me, getting on the dang horse and wandering out across the prairie is actually interesting because, you know, and if I'm designing for me, I'd have, you know, stuff showing up, tiny minor missions that would pop up somewhere that I could follow that would lead me to something else. Uh, and it's a lot of what I'm doing in 77 now. It's just wandering around going, oh, that was cool. I had no idea, you know, like they put that there. And one of the things I love when I start looking at people's stuff online is how many people have used the photography aspect capabilities in 77 just to build things that show their love of the world why are you why do you have your character sitting on their motorcycle looking at the sunset because it's just damn cool mm -hmm. that's enough for me man that's it you know you used the game the way you needed to oh i had many moments like that playing the witcher 3 where i was just like yeah wait how do i take a screenshot because i have to yes yes <laughs> that's amazing all right so red dead redemption sean i had to, i had to clean out my screenshots so my wife didn't find all like like these these like shots of me with pan am on a date here and i'll remember this bunch of pan am and me had here gosh i would say um i I'd probably say that the game that, that hit me like the deepest most recently was probably Disco Elysium. Like it's, it's something I keep coming back to. And they recently like, like did a big uh, update for it with full voice and all this stuff. And that game is just so rich. And, and the, there, there, there are not enough games where the prose is so beautiful that you want to read it. Right. Uh, so, so I would actually say that, that has been something that sucked me in. And it also has a level of reactivity to what I do. That is what I'm looking for. Right? Like that's to me, the aspiration for games to get to Mike earlier, I was talking about how I think that, you know, where narrative design is going is not in the, the direction of like, we're going to have so many branches. It'll just branch forever, but it's going to this much more uh, contextually rich place where we're sort of chasing after the experience of working with a live DM. Uh, and, you know, games that have done that for me have been like Divinity Original Sin 2, uh, Disco Elysium does that for me. There, there are aspects of, of Red Dead uh, that did that for me. I, when I finished Red Dead 2, I mean, I, I put a tear in my eye. And it was a journey. <laughs> yeah, it's a journey and it becomes part of your life. And I think a well-designed game should have that, that level of discovery built into it. And, you know, that was one of the things I loved about Witcher 3 was, you know, uh, I didn't much play it as I sat over Cody's shoulder and he and Lisa were banging their way through it. But I enjoyed the fact that I could find a lot out. And by the time we got to Blood and Wine, it was like, wow, okay, there is so much happening here. And all it makes me want to do is find more of what's happening. And the problem with branches is most of our audiences are much more sophisticated and they're going to see that you faked them out and said, oh, yeah, I had 50 branches that all led to the same place. So if you put stuff scattered through that world, which you can now do with a lot of the engines in existence, then it isn't like they followed a branch, you know, 
or you have something that they stumble across that can plug into the branch in 15 or 20 different places. Yeah. You don't want people driving towards like, there's the good, bad, and the medium ending. Like what you really want them thinking about is like, I don't want to get to the end because I want to explore. I want to, I want to see what other possibilities are here. Yeah. Yeah. Assassin's Creed was like that for me. It was, you know, we get through all the missions and I go, okay, so I now have enough money to own all of Rome. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going, what could I do here? And I was really disappointed that I couldn't like set up a banking empire or something. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be a de Medici. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna say for my for my game that I played recently that I just love was um Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Cause I was just like, I'm a yes. I am a pirate. I'm a pirate now, I'm on the seas, and I could just yes. like play that pirate mode for years it was just yeah. so so just good. ignore all the other story you know i don't i don't really care about it you know i i'm just doing pirate stuff you know no i'm gonna be a whaler you that's know? right that's so weird <laughs> yeah, I, I looked at that and i said you can be a whaler yep that is yeah, so i got pretty strange. good at that too i gotta do that yeah <laughs> i love this thank you both so much and thank you mike for sharing your perspective thank you for having me Listeners, you can see more of Mike's work. Visit rtalsoriangames.com. We'll post a link. And yeah, thanks, man. So good. This was wonderful. Okay, now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our example of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. And I'm so excited because this week's weekly dose of good design for me came from a listener. So Hannah Koch or at hcoca-cola on Twitter, reached out. So I thought I'd share this great weekly though. So it's a tiny home village created using recycled shipping containers. And it's all about providing transitional housing for the houseless community in LA. It's called Chandler Tiny Home Village, designed by Lehrer Architects. And it includes 39 bright prefab tiny homes manufactured by a company called Pallet. They're based in Everett, Washington. Each house is small. Uh, it's a total of 135 square feet, but designed with a very efficient use of space. So they could house up to two people. Uh, each has this like very cute like pitched roof that helps with the ceiling height, makes it feel much more roomier in there. Plenty of natural light. Uh, the village has, as I mentioned, 39 tiny homes situated kind of in this really cool way. Uh, they're all surrounding um, the shared bathrooms, a laundry facility, and a kitchen. And I just love what they did with color and trees to make something very joyful and something that people can be proud to be in as they're working towards um, more permanent housing. It feels, when you look at it, like this nice, quaint, little tiny home village instead of something that's like, you know, part of an you know unused urban stretch. We had shared an article in Design Museum Magazine about a similar village in Portland, Oregon that was designed by a group of students at uh, Portland State University. And I just, I love this approach to supporting the houseless community uh, as they step back in. Uh, we'll post a link. Uh, there's a great LA Times story about Chandler Tiny Homes Village, and we'll post a link from the Design Museum Magazine story as well. Uh, so thank you, Hannah, for a great weekly dose. Okay, Sean, you're up. All right. Well, this this may sound like a plug, but it's not a plug. What I really like about my current job is that instead of plugging my own stuff, I get to I get to help push other people's stuff. I mean, I'll plug my own stuff. Go read my Heart Attack comic. You'll probably love it. Pretty great. But to plug someone else, uh, uh, one of the games that that we recently published through Skybound and is something that like is is very much on my mind because 
because as an experience, it's really unique, is a game called Before Your Eyes. Uh, it's a game that you play by blinking. Uh, so you, it's it's PC only for, for the time being. Hopefully, we're going to see it ported to a bunch of other platforms. But for now, you can find it on Steam. It's $9.99. It's about two hours. I recommend doing it all in, in one playthrough. But you essentially are uh, a person who is passing into the afterlife, and you are on a boat ride into, into the next world. And while on that ride, you are going to remember your life. Your whole life is about to flash before your eyes. The trick is, if you blink during one of the scenes in your life, you're going to move forward in advance. And sometimes you don't want to blink, but you are involuntarily blinking because you have to, because you're a human being. And so it is, it is a game that at first challenges you a bit to use, to use input that you've not, that you've not traditionally used to control a game. Uh, but then it also challenges you emotionally, and and as it starts to pull at your heartstrings along the way, you are now in in a much, uh, I'd say, a, a deeper quandary of wow, I don't want to blink, I need to blink functionally, but now I also really need to blink because I'm tearing up yeah. and I'm starting to cry. <laughs> uh, so if if you want a game that's going to make you cry and make you think differently about wow, what power it is to change just the input of uh, if you have a controller, if you have a mouse and keyboard, you're 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 in one mode. But the moment that you put this game into someone's eyes and and hey, you're going to blink through this, it becomes so much more immersive, so much more visceral. And uh, if you want to check out PewDiePie, we got PewDiePie to cry. Uh, so there's there's uh, plenty of plenty of folks online that are that are streaming it. But I would say play it for yourself. Don't get the spoilers. Make yourself cry. Then go tell other people about it. It's uh, it's very cathartic and beautiful experience. And before your eyes, by goodbye world games. Awesome. Can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Thank you. That's awesome. Right, and I just wanted to add, if any of you listeners out there have a great weekly dose of good design, please tweet it at me. I need inspiration. I need your support. So you can tweet me at Sam Aquilano. I would appreciate it. And I appreciate you, Sean. This was so fun. It was so great to catch up. Um, and hear about all the work. Yeah, you're amazing. I appreciate you, Sam. Aw, cheers, bud. Okay, that's our show. I want to thank Sean Kittleson again and Mike Pondsmith again for joining us. What a great conversation. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to some of the other games and resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And we have an awesome weekly email newsletter that you can sign up for on our website as well. You'll always get the latest from Design Museum right to your inbox. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom and additional research by Julia Christian. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here and we'll talk again next week.